We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by Mark Hemingway. He is uh, with Real Clear Investigations, also books editor at The Federalist. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Yeah, and so I wanted to talk to Mark on the occasion, the sad occasion of Joan Didion's passing, which happened, I think, what, December 23rd or 24th, right before Christmas. Um, Mark, Joan Didion had a really interesting evolution as a writer, sort of politically and in more ways than just that. What do you think, looking back on her career, uh, some of her biggest legacies to the field of journalism and American nonfiction writing, maybe even fiction writing, she wrote plenty of fiction as well. What do you think those are? Huh. Oh, is that all you want me to answer? Um, Just a small question. <laughs> you well, have 10 seconds. <laughs> obviously. Um, you know, there, there was, well, first, Didion owes her fame in part because she was, you know, lumped in with the quote unquote new journalism, as it was called, coming out of the 60s. Um, and, you know, I would argue that of those new journalists, there were, you know, a fair number of them, you know, mostly housed and writing at Esquire. But um, there was kind of a triumvirate at the top. Um, um, Tom Wolfe, Hunter S. Thompson, and Joan Didion was probably the third most famous of the three. And what's interesting about Didion is that she, in many ways was so much not like the other two um, or, you know, ran a lot of what she did, um, um, you know, sort of personally and politically, well, not politically so much, but certainly personally and in, in, in her style of writing and other things sort of ran in the opposite direction of the sort of flamboyancy of the particular new journalism was coming out of the 60s. I mean, obviously, Hunter S. Thompson and, and Tom Wolfe were, you know, very much peacocking writers. Um, and while Didion was very stylistic, she was known for being, you know, very sort of in the moment and very acutely observant in, in a different way. In fact, uh, the famous passage that a lot of people, you know, were quoting after um, she died, was, I think it's from the introduction to, from Slouching um, Toward Bethlehem, where she talks about, you know, her real superpowers as a journalist was, you know, being this, you know, female presence that people kind of forgot that she was in the room, you know, so that she could, you know, acutely observe what was going on, you know. When Tom Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson, you know, or, or you know, Gay Talese walked into a room, like, like nobody was confused about who was there. Um, and, you know, for the art of journalism, something that's supposed to be about observing things, um, you know, obviously that can be a big hindrance to sort of getting at the truth in certain ways, unless, of course, what you're trying to do is impose your own narrative on things. Um, and, I, and I think that um, Didion gets a lot of credit for being, you know, sort of more acutely observant rather than, you know, trying to impose herself on, on the writing. You know, Wolf and Hunter S. Thompson and those guys could kind of get away with imposing themselves on the writing because they were such good writers, but it's not necessarily a, a good thing if you're getting at the truth. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of getting to the other part of your question, which is, I think that sort of uh, attitude speaks to a political evolution. Um, actually, Ross Douthat had a very good column about her in the New York Times recently, where he sort of goes into this. But, but basically, I think it's fair to say, you well, well. She had in sort of an interesting legacy in the sense that she started out as a quote unquote Goldwater girl, <laughs> and uh, she you know was a contributor to National Review, and there was you know throughout the '60s, you know some of her you know some, she wrote some searing pieces on sort of hippiedom and the summer of love and that sort of thing. You know she was innately skeptical of of what was going on, um, partly because you know she was 
neutral and observant enough to not be part of what was going on. I mean, in retrospect, it was really easy to see, you know, what was going on in San Francisco in the summer of love was, you know, going to, you know, end in a lot of, you know, um, destroyed idealism. Um, and, but yet she was one of a few people that actually, you know, came out and sort of said it at the time, uh, you know, at a time where all of the sort of literary and cultural elites wanted that, you know, to succeed. Um, even if it wasn't on the same page as the rest of America, I think it's fair to say that the literary elites were very much in favor of sort of, you know, the sort of hippie idealism and remaking society and all that nonsense that was going on at the time. Anyway, so that that made her sort of naturally conservative in, in that sense. Um, but it was conservative in, in sort of a in a in a. In a in a very good and honest way in the sense that she was, you know, critiquing what was going on from, you know, what she thought was, you know, accurate judgment. Um, and, and she, you know, she was noted for becoming more liberal over time. You know, obviously by the time we get to the eighties and stuff, she's, you know, much more skeptical of sort of, you know, the sunny optimism of, you know, Reagan's America. And, you know, at the same time, it's also true that conservatives have become much more ideological instead of reactionary um, by then. And that also made her inherently skeptical of what was going on. I mean, you know, she was questioning whether or not the people in power at the time, you know, <clears throat> I think it's fair to say that the ascendancy of Reagan's of Reagan meant that, you know, certainly in the business culture and other important institutions in America, there was enough of a conservative ascendancy that they were influencing a, a lot of the culture at the time. And she was she, too, was skeptical of that. Um, and I think that's mostly to her credit. Um, you know, I think that obviously she indulged in a lot of she indulged in some liberal pieties for sure. But uh, um, for the most part, you know, compared to her peers, I think she was much more honest and, and uh, sort of um, much more honest and, and a better observer than a lot of them. I think she really had a cynicism um, before a cynicism that is entirely warranted before a lot of people came around to it. And uh, one of the things I quoted uh, in the piece that I wrote the day she died is her review of Bob Woodward's book, which is just absolutely brutal um, and in a very, in a very fantastic, entertaining and enlightening way. She writes, what seems most remarkable in this Woodward book is exactly what seemed remarkable in the previous Woodward books, each of which was presented as the insider's inside story and each of which went on to become a number one bestseller. These are books in which measurable cerebral activity is virtually absent. She goes on to say, the genuflection towards fairness is a familiar newsroom piety in practice, the excuse for a good deal of autopilot reporting and lacy thinking, but in theory, a benign ideal. In Washington, however, a community in which the management of news has become the single overriding preoccupation of the core industry, what fairness has often come to mean is a scrupulous passivity in agreement to cover the story, not as it is occurring, but as it is presented, which is to say, which is to say as it is manufactured. And this is such an interesting evolution for her, but also as you're talking about the sort of uh, ascendancy of the Reagan coalition, she really seemed to loathe the Reagans. But what she loathed in, in her writings in, Reagans that in Reagan that comes through is the theater. She seemed to absolutely detest political theater because she saw it as utterly sort of detached from reality. Do you think that's a fair assessment? And are there other things that we can see in her writing that, that sort of point directionally in that way? I think that's uh, astoundingly fair. In fact, uh, that was a very succinct demonstration of what I was trying to describe in a rather sort of long-winded way prior to you reading that. So, <laughs> um, yes, um, 
I, you know, I guess what I would just say, though, is that um, I think one of the things that came out of the 60s in, in particular, um, you know, the 80s was supposed to be the me generation. But I think in, in some regards, the 80s was what that was about. That was about the baby boom generation in the 80s, you know, that were the me generation, you know, coming to full flower from all of the idealism of the 60s in, in some ways. Um, and so. I think that selfishness really started in the in the 60s. I mean, I don't know what it was. I think it was about the infiltration of a lot of postmodern ideals, which, you know, ironically, new journalism was a big you know, part of that. You know, it was about taking literary techniques and other things to sort of, you know, get at the truth in a um, sort of, you know, using, you know, the tools of fiction, essentially, which in, in and of itself is inherently a contradiction and, you know, problematic um, when you start talking about, you know, what journalism is and should, what journalism is and, and shouldn't be. Um, so, I mean, I think that, you know, she, the fact she rejected the narcissism of the 60s isn't surprising that she rejected the narcissism of the 80s, even if it was, you know, you know, reactionary in the other way. I mean, to some extent, there, there still was some narcissism. And I think, you know, it's kind of the same thing where, you know, the... Um, there was a whole establishment class, um, you know, and again, it didn't even reflect the opinions of, of mainstream America um, uh, in a lot of ways in the 60s that that looked at the summer of love and hippies and all of that, you know, the anti-Vietnam, anti-war protests as like the defining, you know, cultural things in America in the 1960s. And the reality was that they weren't even that big a part of popular culture. They were just what the elites were interested in. And, and they had this, you know, sort of lasting impact as a result of, of it being sort of overblown. Um, and the same thing, I think... It, the, and as you know, decades pass, we've looked back on the 60s with a lot more cynicism. I think the same thing is happening now with the Reagan era um, among, you know, the right post-Trump. Um, you know, there are a lot of what Reagan did. I mean, you know, um, Reagan gets a lot of credit, of course, for winning the Cold War, as he should. But it's also true that his domestic agenda was kind of a disaster, um, you know. Uh, the, you know, put us on a path and immigration policy and other things that was, you know, has been devastating to the low, you can argue has been devastating to the, the domestic economy and wages and all kinds of other problems we've had since then in, in you know, domestic economy issues. Um, and, you know, you're starting to see some things like, you know, Chris Caldwell's, you know, recent book, um, um, oh my gosh, why am I blanking on the name of the title? But Chris Caldwell's recent book, you know, which was, you know, much discussed, um, you know, basically goes to town on Reagan, you know, for being a disaster. Um, and, um, you know, in terms of domestic policy, and I, I think there's a lot of cynicism now being, well, I should say revisionism at least, you know, because Reagan still did have one big major accomplishment, which is more than you can say out of the anti-war protesters in a lot of ways. Um, so uh, I think that, you know, her cynicism in certain ways was warranted. Um, you know, to what extent that was mixed up with, you know, partisan political nonsense. You know, well, I mean, that's a whole other issue. And by then, you know, obviously Didion was existing in the milieu of Hollywood and other things like that. But but yeah, I think her cynicism was was justified and, and prescient. And uh, I don't say that about cynicism very often because there's too much of it. I thought that was the really interesting contrast between a lot of conservatives' reaction to her death and a piece, I think this was by Nick Rowan in, in The Examiner, who basically um, criticized her for being overly cynical. But if anything, I think she was early to, to the cynicism. Um, I want to ask about the Goldwater Girl part of her story, because she had this sort of fascination with uh, the, the, the plight of the Okies and her own family, I think she wrote, came through the Donner Pass 
class um, on their way to California, and she had an obsession with the Donner Party and, and all of that. She was very, very interested in sort of the origin story of the uh, settlers of Northern California, or the, the sort of 19th century settlers of Northern California. How do you think that informed her outlook, and do you think it changed over the years at all? Do you think she almost became cynical about that origin story even of itself? Yeah, Douthat actually discusses the cynicism of her own origin story. To what extent, you know, any person, you know, hoping to get at the truth can like place themselves inside of the the story. You know, like I I said, you know, with guys like Wolf and Hunter S. Thompson and stuff, like they walked into a room and they they kind of were the story. Which is not to say they weren't able to get at the truth in in different ways that way, but it, it. it's a whole different um, process, um, and, and there's a reason why that was kind of a, a sort of um, a postmodern uh, um, innovation, um, rather than you know what we you know traditionally think of as as journalism. Whereas Didion was sort of inherently skeptical of that. Um, I think to some extent that was you know it was very related to her roots in California because you got to remember what was going on you know when she was coming of age in California in the 1950s and 1960s, and my dad grew up in California in the 1950s. And, you know, my dad talks about um, Southern California at the time, like, you know, it was, you know, probably the apex of human civilization. I mean, there's an argument to for that. I mean, you had, you know, the most perfect weather on planet Earth. Um, you know, L.A. wasn't this sprawling mess and it was still largely orange groves. And yet it was still big enough to be like, you know, world class city. And you had, you know, beaches and it was still affordable and all this other stuff. And that was all great. But in pretty short order, you know, um, what happened was, you know, California just exploded in terms of people flooding there to, you know, to carve out their sort of, you know, part of the American dream. And while that's a noble thing, it also involved sort of a lot of destruction, a lot of sort of tearing down. Um, and it, w- it w- a lot of people arrived trying to, you know, reinvent California as a place that, you know, and, and turned it essentially into a place that was rootless and had no history and no legacy of the people that were there, um, you know. And um, that... I think probably made her pretty cynical in terms of her own, you know, if she was cynical about her own origin story and like what could be, how people could be manipulated to rethink the origins and the the state of where they're, they're from, then what else could they be manipulated about? Um, and, and I think that really affected her writing. The uh, contrast that I think you invoked um, between the, like the Didion that can see the flaws in Bob Woodward um, and his sort of purported voice of God coverage of everything. And the fact that new journalism, as you say, was in and of itself sort of participating in this uh, propulsion of postmodernism into the mainstream and into uh, journalism in a way that probably infected the, the product more than it improved it. Can I get your take actually on that question does does new journalism stand as something that improved the tradition of American journalism or has harmed it? Because it does seem as though there's so many people who want to follow in Didion's footsteps who do it and Tom Wolf's, Wolf's footsteps who do it miserably and who do it poorly. Um, but do you think ultimately this has been a net benefit or a disadvantage? Well, I think ultimately it's been a huge um, net be- uh, sort of net um What's the word I'm looking for? Um, sort of net uh, net drag on journalism, essentially. Um, partly because 
And, and I don't necessarily know if that's entirely the new journalist's fault, okay? Um, whatever you want to say about the new journalism, most of the people that were, you know, associated with new journalism, Truman Capote, you know, Gay Talese, um, Hunter Thompson, um, you know, Tom Wolfe, um, and all those guys could really write. I mean, they were, like, remarkably talented people for the most part. Um, and... Their legacy coming out of the 60s and, and 70s doing that stuff, um, you know, can't be denied. I mean, it, but the problem is, is that um, when once journalism became largely democratized, you know, starting with the Internet, you carried forward the attitude of these, you know, writers with all this terrific ambitions and egos into a situation where there were no gatekeepers left and there were no editors. Um, um, and, and, and there was no, also no financial model to sustain it. Even if you have really talented writers, you know, almost no publications anymore can say, Hey, you know, I'm going to give you an expense account, go travel to this event for, you know, seven days and then take the next month off writing about what you think it means for America in some grand sense. Um, <laughs> that just doesn't happen anymore. I mean, I remember when I started writing for the Weekly Standard, I mean, a big part of the reason why I wanted that job was because it was one of the last, you know, quote unquote, you know, ideological magazines left that did that kind of thing where like I had an expense account, I could travel, I could do things. Um, and that was such a rare opportunity, you know, even 15 years ago when I started writing for the magazine and then, you know, a few years later when I started working for it, um, um, that just kind of model of journalism just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, even at the bigger places, you know, like the Atlantic and, and New Yorker, I mean, it's, it's hard to come by. So, um, the problem was simply that we had established this sort of, um, um, hierarchy that allowed, you know, to filter out, you know, the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, I'm sure there were a lot of, you know, I don't know, you know, crappy underground magazines in the 60s. Well, I know there were a lot of crappy underground magazines in the 60s where a bunch of people you know, were posers trying to be you know, part of the new journalism, but they're all, you know, forgotten by the wayside or whatever. You know, now, uh, you know, everybody has a website and can just, you know, post their unfiltered thoughts and there's no gatekeepers or whatever that can, you know, filter out the, 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 you know, well, okay, well, we're going to tolerate Hunter S. Thompson's eccentricities and his drug taking because he's a great writer, um, you know, that can make those judgments. Um, so, you know, we're left in this place where there's, there's no one left to like pick these people out of obscurity and, and, you know, have the sort of collective judgment that, uh, um, that sustains the sort of financial model. So last year I asked Mark for his help compiling a reading list for conservative journalism students. And he included a lot of work from the so-called new journalists. And Mark, I'm curious, looking back, when you read those sorts of pieces, what do you think the benefit of that kind of uh, strategy is? You know, you talk about how it's it's, a, it's definitely different if you're Joan Didion or Hunter S. Thompson um, and, and to the extent that you're part of the story. But when we read that kind of work, what do we glean from it um, in a way that we wouldn't get from sort of the, the wire reports or your normal dispatches that you'd might see in the, the Washington Post or the New York Times? 
So whenever I talk to young journalists today, it's really interesting. Like when I was younger and I wanted to get into journalism, like I never really wanted to be a journalist per se. I just wanted to be a writer and, and in sort of the grand sense. I don't know, maybe I'd write novels. Maybe I would write, you know, essays. Maybe I would write, you know, long sort of, you know, fun journalistic, you know, features that got at the, you know, the deeper truths of things. But, you know, I, I didn't want to, you know, crank out op-eds and I didn't want to be a blogger and I didn't want to be any of this other, you know, crap that sort of defines modern journalism today um and i find it really depressing that like when you talk to um younger journalists and, and again this is part and parcel of the legacy of new the, the the bad legacy of new new journalism unfortunately as well um most of the people that i think that are younger people that really want to get into journalism today it's because they see it as a means to an end they want to have political influence they want to leverage their journalistic connections into some sort of you know status um you know and and certainly that's what happened with some of the 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 better you know, new, new journalists. But at the core, what they were doing was always this sort of remarkable talent. Well, the reality is in the era of social media, you can leverage yourself into all kinds of things without ever having to demonstrate any sort of talent or dedication to things. Um, and so, um, you know, it was common, I think, of, you know, journalists or you know, people with writing ambitions from, from, you know, my, you know, sort of solidly Gen X era to be have this sort of like literary vision of things mm. like to understand that things were part of grand narratives to understand that the world was complex and required a lot of observation from different angles and i don't think that younger journalists do that so i mean i think giving them a sense of what journalism can accomplish you know in sort of the grandest sense which is what the new journalists did effectively i think um you know that that it can be as compelling as you know sort of the best fiction um i think puts sort of the right idea into people which is to say that you want to be respected for your ideas and observation power and your talent rather than you know you know how many followers you have or you know how many congressmen live in fear of what you're tweeting um and uh so that's kind of the sort of you know ambition i'd like to impart upon younger journalists basically is i want them to like think in in a very big picture about you know their own talents and their own skills and their own abilities like you know to like throw down a gauntlet and be like you know can you do this are you willing to put in the time and dedication you know to get to like this level of skill with writing as it you know and as a baseline for whatever else you want to do um and that's unfortunately the problem is that writing is no longer the baseline for journalism mm -hmm. and you know back in the 60s it absolutely was um you know your ability to write at a high level and write in, in a really sort of compelling and original way was the measure of your influence now it's it's you know it's it's barely there it's a means to an end when did we decide to stop upholding free speech as a basic right? What's playing out right now at big tech companies and social media sites sets a dangerous precedent. Look, it doesn't matter what your politics are or who you voted for. Everyone should have the right to express themselves freely. Sadly, the big tech monopoly has instead opted for silencing tactics and censorship. To fight back against big tech's control of the internet, I use ExpressVPN. Ever wondered how free-to-access tech giants make all their money? 
Well, by tracking your searches, video history, and everything you click on. By building a profile on you and then selling off your sensitive data. When you use the ExpressVPN app on your computer or phone, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you from eavesdroppers and cyber criminals. What I like most is how easy it is to use. It just takes one click to protect all your devices. That's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by Business Insider. So let's stop allowing big tech to revoke our rights to free speech. Why not revoke their right to your data instead? Secure your internet with the VPN I trust for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash federalist to get three extra months free with my exclusive link. Go to expressvpn.com slash federalist, expressvpn.com slash federalist right now to learn more. How do you think Didion managed to be compelling and kind of dry at the same time? Her writing is so different than a lot of other people in, in new journalism. Um, very, very different than if you're reading Tom Wolf or uh, Hunter S. Thompson. How do you think she she sort of managed? Uh, my take on it is that I think she, she had these very precise descriptions, and those descriptions were also very insightful, and that's sort of what, you know, there was obvious value in, in her language and everything that she was doing. But do you have any insights on what it was about her style that made Didion so successful? I think you kind of hit on it. Um, I, her, she was very precise, um, and her writing feels very immediate. Like, you know, you, she, you, you are going to, you know, understand what's going on here, and she conveys a sense of authority without being egotistical, like a lot of the other writers. Like, just the preciseness of the details and other things like that convey such a um, a sense that she has done her homework and that she really has made the effort to understand where these people are coming from like like what's that essay i forget what the name of it was but the the essay in in slouching from uh slouching toward bethlehem where she describes this you know woman involved in the murder of her husband and just goes through like the details of domestic you know life and marriage in the in the early mid 60s or whatever it was and you know what you know what your life was like living in the california suburbs being married to a dentist and like just you know, you look at the face of that and be like, you know, why am I, you know, even caring about this, you know, a, a random domestic crime? And, you know, you realize slowly as it's going on that, like, really, this is a commentary on sort of the, I don't know, existential dread of American suburban life. And, you know, the transition, you know, within the span of a few decades, you know, into this sort of whole new lifestyle um, that people hadn't really considered, like what the ennui of that is going to do to people. Um, and uh, it's really just sort of fascinating. And she gets at all these things without ever like addressing the larger themes in some sort of high handed way. She does it all through you know, the careful revealing of detail and the sequence of events. And yet all of these massive themes are just like looming above everything in the piece. Um, and that is real skill. Let me tell you, as a writer, to pull off that kind of thing. Um, so I, I think that that's it. It's just the immediacy of the detail and the the 
the conveying that she understands what's going on without having to be showy about it. In a weird way, it is like very feminine in the absolute best sense. You know what I'm saying? She doesn't wield authority by, you know, uh, you know, announcing her presence and, you know, threatening people with her intellect or anything like that. She, you know, does it, you know, very carefully and almost in a, in a um, sort of, oh, it's a kind of righteous manipulation, basically, is what I would say. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, I think that's, that's very feminine and I think that's another reason why she was so beloved is you know she really was being a woman and and not just a woman in you know the literal sense but you know very sort of feminine in her outlook was an incredibly pleasing um contrast to a lot of the sort of swagger involved in you know I mean for, for God's sake you know Norman Mailer is often invoked in the um um in the discussions of uh of new journalism, you know, because he kind of an, he made a major con made major contributions to it with his Superman comes to the supermarket and other seminal essays. But, you know, I mean, I don't know how well the Norman Mailer stuff ages compared to Joan Didion. In fact, I'd argue that his contributions to journalism haven't really aged well at all in a lot of ways. I mean, um, and I would, you know, even argue that some of the liberal critiques are quasi accurate. I mean, David Foster Wallace once referred to Norman Mailer as a penis with a thesaurus. <laughs> so, um, I, I think the fact that Didion was, you know, feminine in, in her, in her approach and thinking, um, you know, was, was a real sort of positive for her and positive for the rest of us. Right. And, and slashing towards Bethlehem, you know, I think probably her most important essay as it, with, with, you know, hindsight um, being 2020 is, I mean, it ends famously on the scene of the baby. Um, and that's about as feminine as it gets. And I don't yeah. know that if you send male correspondents into the same situation, they all emerge with that uh, perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's, that's exactly right. Um, uh, I, you know, you see, and you see this also in later writings and in the year of magical thinking and things like that, you know, how much that was central to her identity. And I think that for a lot of women and, you know, and she, and she also famously was pretty, you know, launched some pretty devastating critiques of sort of, you know, sixties era feminism. Um, and I, I think that for a lot of women who were coming of age at the time and, you know, struggling to understand, these, you know, complex issues that are being presented to them that they're like, on one hand, they have like maternal instincts and want to get married, have a, you know, a good marriage. Um, but on the other hand, they're told that they're not going to be fulfilled by doing any of that stuff and they have to reject the patriarch and all those stuff. Um, Didion was a real beacon for a lot of confused women there about, you know, you can, in fact, um, you know, you're right to be skeptical of people that are rejecting traditional conventions here. And at the same time, you know, you also are right to think that there is, you know, more that women can do in terms of their contributions than simply be, you know, wives and mothers. Um, uh, you know, and she was proof of all of those things um, in, in, in her own way. So, um, you know, I think that she definitely blazed a trail in terms of being a woman who stood apart from, you know, having to be put in, in a box, um, you know, in terms of, you know, what being told what women should do, nor being told that women have to reject conventions. And it's interesting because ultimately with the loss of her daughter and her husband, she sort of came to be defined by uh, the absence of those things. And in fact, she she sort of did it herself. Um, could you sort of extend or pull up the, the year of magical thinking thread um, in that sense? Oh, well, um, I, huh, it's been forever since I've read that, but, uh, um, 
I do think that uh, um, it was interesting to see that, you know, Didion had kind of been, don't get me wrong, I mean, like, you know, some of the legacy like her was never going to be forgotten, but um, <laughs> the book kind of came a little out of left field in the sense that um, it was such a huge phenomenon and success when it came out. And, you know, Didion hadn't really been a part of sort of the mainstream, you know, literary journalistic elite, you know, conversation for a long time when that, when that came out. And I just think it's like really fascinating that it was the themes of family um, and you know mortality or whatever that brought her back into that conversation um mm -hmm. you know which you know again like i said it just proves how sort of defiant you know she was in the face of convention um in in terms of the, the and also just generally being you know cynical as we in, in, in a good way like we like like we discussed so you know i don't really know what i could say to 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 add to that but it is it, i think it is totally true that she um viewed her life's work um as a, a mother and a woman as being you know essential and co-equal to i think her professional accomplishments and that book was the merging of those two things and i think that that in and of itself is a sort of refreshing and uh, um, positive message for a lot of women out there that are trying to like sort of find their way are you a fan of her fiction? Um, I'm curious because I'm I'm not. It's never really gripped me, um, and it is sort of people have commented on this. It's it's written kind of as screenplays. She loved the dialogue um, even more so than I think the prose, and at least in the case of fiction. But are you? Is it is it something that you're particularly fond of? I have never read a novel of hers. Um, uh, I don't think that that is uh, necessarily um, an um, uncommon um, take on it. Um, and, and, you know, partly that's why I haven't read it. This is, I've never read anyone that I've, I really liked or respected. I'm like, oh, that Joan Didion novel was, was good. It was always <laughs> like, you know, Joan Didion's novel in the context of understanding her own career and her own career path. And, and you know, the its relation to the work of an otherwise major artist. Um, you know, I would note that, I mean, she did write the screenplay for the 1976 version of A Star is Born, <laughs> which obviously has had a huge cultural legacy with the remake recently and, and everything else. Um, so, you know, um, she, you know, her film work in, in a weird sort of way, um, you know, is, is going to have a lasting legacy. Um, but, uh, you know, um, there was a movie that came out like a year ago, I want to say. I don't remember what it was, but it was based on one of Joan Didion's novels, and it had an all-star cast, and it completely flopped. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't you know, know whether that's her fault or not, but, oh, yeah, sorry. It, um, uh, it was called The Last Thing He Wanted, and it starred Anne Hathaway and Ben Affleck and, ben Affleck and Willem Dafoe. That's um, right. And so... Yeah, I mean, I don't know um, what to say about her fictional legacy. Um, you know, she wrote one screenplay that seems to have a lasting impact, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular essay of hers or even essay collection or book of hers that you think is uh, either your personal favorite or the most important? Uh, sorry, uh, what, what is the most, um, you broke up there for a second, what, what was the most important? Is there a particular essay or even an essay collection that stands out to you as like your personal favorite or what you think is the most important or maybe even both? Well, it's clearly slouching toward Bethlehem. I mean, if you're going to read one thing by her, it's that. Um, you know, I don't know if I'd necessarily single out anything in it. Um, slouching toward Bethlehem and then the White Album. Um, um, and I honestly... 
if you've read those two things by her, um, you could, and, and then you, and you re, and if you really liked her, you could probably tack on the year of magical thinking. Um, but I would, you know, honestly, if, if, you know, you just want to, if you ever aren't familiar with Diddy and want to get familiar with her, just read Sledging Toward Bethlehem and I think you'll get it. Yeah, <laughs> that pretty much encapsulates it. Um, although her political work was really interesting, I think her uh, political fictions is the essay co- compilation, but she was sort of dispatched um, to campaign trails by various publications over the course of the 80s and I think the early 90s. And um, she wrote this fantastic essay, and I think this is what political fiction starts with, called Insider Baseball, about... Um, Michael Dukakis playing baseball on the runway outside his campaign plane and it it lands on some really interesting some really interesting insights how do you think she um I guess we sort of we we sort of touched on this earlier but how do you think the the sort of cynicism of her politics matched the cynicism or was earlier than the cynicism of the country because you mentioned your generation Gen X had that was sort of stamped with this mentality about grand narratives and maybe you could even say romance. Um, how do you think she either blended or stood out with the mood of the country throughout the course of her career? Huh. That is a really interesting question. <laughs> um, and a big one. Um, well, you know, I, I do think that it is interesting. So like my generation, Generation X, uh, you know, we're, we came after the baby boomers, of course, and we were sort of, if you go back to all the 90s stuff that defined, you know, Generation X back then, um, literally the novel Generation X by Douglas Copeland or, or Reality Bites or any of that other nonsense. I mean, it was all marked by the fact that, you know, we should have been cynical, more cynical of the establishment than our parents were. Um, you know, well, my parents weren't baby boomers. Most kids my age have had parents who were baby boomers. But um, and so I think the fact that there was a rejection of the sort of baby boomer idealism by Didion early on um, sort of what was one, it was appreciated in her own time because it was badly needed and there were so few people that were doing it, but it, it carried on into the next generation in a way that gave her a sort of like currency and, 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 re- um, and, and, um, relevance to, um, the next generation as well. Um, I don't know if that's carried on beyond that, um, beyond Gen X, just because, uh, I don't know. I mean, our, our attention spans have been killed and, uh, um, I don't, like I said, I don't see people getting into journalism anymore because they want to be writers. Um, but um, I do think that it had sort of a, a big impact on on how we saw things. Um, I think we're actually entering an area where there can be like there's simultaneously too much and not enough cynicism in terms of the, you know, this cynicism is sort of the currency of journalism. It's just directed at all the wrong things. Um <laughs> Um, so, you know, we have to kind of be careful what you wish for, but it's also true that one thing about the Trump era that I think that was positive was that people, you know, got all upset about this, you know, reality TV star carnival barker, you know, rising to the top of American politics. Well, that was, you know, how surprising really was that, you know, you read like that Didion essay, which I'd forgotten all about, but I'm familiar with it. Um, and you, you wonder you know, how much of this stuff had been there lying under the surface all along, you know, and, you know, she was some kind of Cassandra, I think, that saw a lot of that before it was laid bare before um, the rest of us. Mm. 
Now, do you think it's possible for people to do any of this today? I mean, obviously, you talked into the sort of you talked about the the business component. There just aren't businesses that back this kind of journalism anymore. Um, there, there aren't business models at publications that back this kind of journalism anymore. But at the same time, there has been that democratization that at once has kind of undermined the business model, but also opened it up for people to to self publish and kind of do their own thing. But an essential component of of doing good writing is having good editors and and going through sort of that traditional structure um, of you know the, the layers um, and being having a professional product. Do you think it's possible for people to to follow meaningfully in the footsteps of the Joan Didions and the Hunter S. Thompsons and the Truman Capotes and the Gay Talises of the world in 2022? Huh. So, I mean, if you go back at like, you know, all of the, you know, new journalism mythos, I mean, a huge part of it is these battles with editors at Rolling Stone and Esquire and other places like that, you know, because it, it took, you know, someone to really, you know, take these wild eyed, ambitious people and like, you know, wrestle the, what their thoughts and everything into shape. I mean, there's, there's no question about it. Um, you know, there are famously exceptions to this. Um, you know, there's, you know, oh, the, the, I supposedly the story is on what was it the uh, the I forget the Tom Wolf essay about cars the tangerine flake whatever it was where Tom Wolf like literally like you know was asked what he, he said he wouldn't write the article but he, he he had some thoughts on how someone else should write the article and he banged out 30 pages in one sitting and sent them off and they practically printed published it without changing a comma um and so you know there are i suppose in that in this, this environment where everyone is a substack or whatever there are going to be possibly some savants that will come out here and they will attract a big enough of a following that they will have the financial resources to go off and do what they want. And maybe they don't need the traditional structure of editors and things like that. Um, but you're gonna in order to really write at the highest level um you really need editors and structures and other things like that and more than that you need like widespread you know distribution channels that can kind of make things you know the coin of the realm or you know get people who wouldn't necessarily be inclined to read something to agree you know to read it and and, you know and and have their mind changed um and i worry about that being possible in our polarized realm it's also true that some of the more ambitious people in the substack realm like like barry weiss is on substack but it's pretty clear that Barry Weiss isn't just Barry Weiss's newsletter. Like Barry Weiss is trying to build some sort of like alternative publication. And that's what I think what we, the next phase of this needs to be, you know, if we're going to have like the new, new journalism, we've got to have some ambitious people out there that understand that, you know, we've got to create new structures that exist outside the corporate media model uh, that is dependent on, you know, big tech and, you know, social media to promote everything for their, you know, financial um, well-being um, and get into some sort of a back to some sort of direct to consumer business model like we had before, you know, big tech destroyed that. Um, and, um, to build some sort of, you know, old school superstructure in terms of editing rather than simply trying to churn out, you know, massive amounts of content that can generate the most amount of, you know, low quality, quality clicks spread out across the internet. Hmm. Well, that's a, and I think that tackles one part. And the second part I want to get at in this, this question as we wrap up, I want to read a, a longer-ish quote from the beginning of Slashing Towards Bethlehem. Um, and I want to get your take, Mark, on, you know, apart from even the, the quality of the style and the quality of the writing, another part of the quality of the writing is the sort of message. And um, this, this passage is really interesting, and I think you'll know why um, when I read it. 
She writes, it was not a country in open revolution. It was not a country under enemy siege. It was the United States of America in the cold late spring of 1967, and the market was steady, and the GNP high, and a great many articulate people seemed to have a sense of high social purpose, and it might have been a spring of brave hopes and national promise, but it was not, and more and more people had the very uneasy apprehension that it was not. All that seemed clear was that at some point we had aborted ourselves and butchered the job, and because nothing else seemed so relevant, I decided to go to San Francisco. So obviously there's something almost eerily prescient about that passage and its sort of relevance now or its application now. But I'm curious if you also think this this business model that exists in journalism and obviously takes different forms at different publications even incentivizes observations that are this sharp. I think this was published in the San Francisco Examiner uh, or it may have been the San Francisco Chronicle. But um, is there something that is pushing journalists away from uh, keying in? In on insightful descriptions or insightful understandings um, that do cut against the grain in the way that Didion did in the late 60s. Yeah, I mean, it's that the new journalists in a lot of ways were um, victims of their own success in terms of what they did to journalism. Um, you got to remember that um, until about the mid 70s, you know, journalism as an academic study, something you get a degree in was a pretty rare thing in America. Um, it was a combination of the new journalists and, and Watergate, you know, bringing down a president that all of a sudden turned, you know, journalism into this sort of, you know, quasi celebrity status. Um, and everyone wanted to be like that. Um, and the problem is, is that, you know, being a celebrity is anathema to having the kind of, you know, powers of observation that someone like Joan Didion had, um, or, you know, simply being in a position where you are, you know, you want to put yourself in a position to, um, you know, turn down, you know, whatever opportunities are being thrown your way to do something that it actually involves, I don't know, living with a bunch of filthy hippies in San Francisco um, <laughs> for a couple of months or whatever and writing about what's going on. Um, you know, it, it, it used to be a much more sort of like blue collar, less glamorous pursuit, you know, and it was and the people that were doing it were driven by a desire to get out the truth rather than, you know, I don't know, burnishing their careers. Um, and so until we get to a situation where, you know, aside from the aforementioned business problems, we get to a point where people see writing as a means to an end you know, because they want to accomplish something in terms of, you know, rooting out the truth in terms of, you know, having all sorts of, you know, noble, unfashionable ideas about what the higher goals of writing are. Um, I have a hard time imagining we're going to get sort of back to that place. Um, the other problem is simply that just people aren't readers anymore. You know, um, the, the, the days of, you know, publishing a 20,000 word essay in Esquire and expecting people to sit down and read that are just, you know, sort of long gone. People don't have the attention spans or the desire and there's no format left to, to publish in. Um, and the worst part about this is, is I think it's, it's also infecting literature itself. I mean, you know, um, the culture that doesn't, you know, want the truth, you know, doesn't get it in any form, you know, and, and the best forms of art, you know, whether it's the artistic side of new journalism or, you know, 
um, novels themselves, you know, reflect some sort of truth. And, and I think a lot of us are comfortable being lied to because I'm being told that our political priors are correct or being told that our, our you know, our preferences are, are right. And anyone that doesn't like those things um, is the enemy um, are, are not really interested in the truth. And we just need to get back to a place where people want to hear the truth. Hmm. Sort of a depressing note to end on, but uh, Mark Hemingway. I mean, part of the reason that uh, Mark is is the guest for the Joan Didion uh, episode is because I think he's one of the few people um, who who writes beautifully and artfully. And Mark, we're so lucky that you are still around to grace us with your insights. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's way too kind, but thank you so much. I appreciate that. What's the name of the essay you wrote about uh, the diner on Capitol Hill? Uh, Plato's Diner, I think. Um, yeah, that's, that's Jimmy T's at the corner of Fifth and East Capitol if you live in, in Washington, D.C., which is maybe the last great Greek diner in the city. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and it's just a beautiful essay. So if you're interested, folks, look up Plato's Diner by Mark Hemingway. It's just a beautiful piece. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Emily. Of course. You've been listening to Mark Hemingway of Real Clear Investigations. He's also our books editor at The Federalist. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. <laughs>